This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Kylie Watson. And I'm Dustin Growing. Dustin, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. So excited. Awesome. We're so excited to have you. Uh, listeners, Dustin is here to nerd out about dinosaurs for us. Dustin, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about why you know so much about <laughs> nerdy dinosaur things? I mean, who doesn't love that? No, uh, so I'm a science communicator. Uh, I'm an educator. Like I've taught in museums. I've taught in the classroom. I do a ton of museum consulting, but my main gig is being an over-enthusiastic dinosaur nerd on the internet um, <laughs> because I firmly believe dinosaurs are a gateway drug to science. We can get into why, uh, but again, like I said a moment ago, any chance I have to nerd out about dinosaurs, I'm here, so I'm excited. Let's do this. Amazing, and I totally agree. Dinosaurs are probably like the OG gateway drug into science. What, what kid mm -hmm. does not have a favorite dinosaur? I used to say that that's why I wrote about poop science so much that I thought it was a great gateway drug into <laughs> loving science because everybody poops. Yep, but famously, um, famously everybody dinosaurs poops. Are, are more fun. Um, all right. So on the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, nerding out on the Internet, etc. And decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sarah Kiley, what's your tease? Okay, well, I'm going to talk about two of 2022's most interesting cupboard discoveries, aka things that people found in the back of their cupboards. Oh, <laughs> I thought that was going to be like a slight euphemism, meaning like stuff from the bowels of a museum, because that does happen okay, all the time. Yep. So it no, is you museum mean... cupboards, but... Oh, okay. I mean, okay. not my cupboards. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sorry, y'all. Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> I, I was really... I was I was like, wow, I didn't know there was a whole subset of um, amateur sure there cupboard is. archaeologists. There, there is, probably. Um, Dustin, what's your tease? Uh, my tease is that the king of all the dinosaurs, America's dinosaur, as it were, uh, Tyrannosaurus rex, probably, probably had feathers. Oh, la la. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I love it. I love a, a giant threatening chicken. I love that. Um, yeah, who doesn't want a glow up like that? <laughs> Fabulous. My tease is uh, that 
scientists have finally investigated the metabolic usefulness of the Monty Python silly walk. Oh, good one. <laughs> wow. Wow. All right. Well, uh, all right. I guess, shall we begin with that then? I <laughs> Yes, please. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Um, so for a little bit of preamble, uh, for listeners who don't know, the British Medical Journal, which is a super serious, legit scientific journal, as legit as they come, uh, has, since the 1980s, had an annual Christmas issue. Um, and it's very cheeky. They, they publish studies that aren't fake. Like, you have to actually like write a, a paper uh, that's in the format of a real science paper, and you have to have real data for it. But they also, you know, they're not that serious as as the meme goes. Uh, that being said, their potential impact really runs the gamut. So like some of them investigate genuine but understandably neglected issues, uh, like the risks of headbanging too much at heavy metal shows, um, which we have actually talked about in a, a PopSci feature package I edited that's really awesome, um, all about various scientific questions around heavy metal. So I'll link to that on popsci.com slash weird. Um, some are inherently cheeky, but like not entirely worthless, like whether beauty sleep is a thing. So in other words, like whether being tired makes people perceive you as uglier. Um, <laughs> A 1999 study recounted the like trials and tribulations of trying to get an MRI image of people having sex, um, which did actually result in a few scientific insights, but also got itself a uh, an ignoble award, oh my God. Uh, which, <laughs> of course, um, awards research that sounds very silly. Um, and to be fair, th this one did sound pretty silly. There are also plenty of like medical workplace specific gags, like statistical analysis of why teaspoons and chocolates disappear so quickly from hospital lounges. Um, and then some of the studies use humor to crack open actually serious issues. In 2015, I covered um, one that confirmed that women in positions of medical leadership were outnumbered not just by men, but by men with mustaches. So great. So all over the place. It's a delightful tradition. Wow. Everybody loves it. If you don't, you are absolutely a Scrooge, a Grinch. It's great. And the 2022 Christmas issue had, I feel, a real Christmas cracker of a study. Um, it had an investigation into the biomechanical implications of Monty Python's Silly Walk. So I'll pause. Uh, I assume that my fellow hosts are familiar with the silly walk, at least so, in passing. In passing. I'm yes. So I'm familiar <laughs> with the concept. Um, I, maybe I'm putting myself on blast here, but I do somewhat of a similar, so I run a lot and I play soccer a lot, and there are times at night where I just go for a walk in the neighborhood and to like to loosen up and stretch out. I do <laughs> what I assume is relatively <laughs> similar. So I'm excited to A, hear about it and B, get a little like uh, credence and so then I don't feel like a total psychopath when I'm walking like that outside. <laughs> no. Yeah. You are going to be vindicated yes. for sure. Um, I was definitely raised in a, a Monty Python household. So the silly walk was really formative for me. Um, you know, it's I'll link to, to clips on pop.com slash weird. <laughs> but just to like briefly summarize, 
it's John Cleese doing just an absurd walk. It's just like surrealist physical comedy at Monty Python doing what Monty Python did best. No explanation. This man is walking silly. But then he proceeds to have a very serious conversation with someone else about his own silly walk. And it's just, again, just absurd, really ridiculous, and uh, really well done. And as a child, I was always like, the silly walk. And, you know, I pranced around the house doing it. Um, that and the uh, the dead parrot scene, I would basically recite um, until my parents wanted to kick me out of the house. So first I'll say, this actually isn't the first time that the silly walk has shown up in peer-reviewed literature. Um, in 2020, Dartmouth researchers published an analysis of the gates of the two silly walkers in the sketch who are dubbed uh, Pewty and Teabag. Um, and they published that in the journal Gate and Posture. So that okay. was not in the BMJ Christmas <laughs> issue. That was that was just for real. Um, and they basically measured how much variation between like the average step there was. Uh, and unsurprisingly, they found that both were way more variable than a normal gait, but that Teabag's was much more so uh, than Pewdie's. So Teabag is the John Cleese character. He is like the one who is quintessentially associated with the silly walk gag. He wears like a bowler hat and he does a lot of high kicks. Um, Pewdie is a man who visits him to try to get a grant to develop his own silly walk. His involves a lot of slow and jerky high knees. And John Cleese actually says, it's not particularly silly, is it? I mean, the right leg isn't sil silly at all. And the left leg merely does a forward aerial half turn every alternate step. Um, to which Mr. Petey argues that with government backing, he could make it, quote, very silly. Uh, so again, uh, the fact that uh, Teabag's gait had more variability than Pewdie's uh, was not surprising. Sometimes science confirms what we already know. So quick, quick question. <laughs> quick question. Yes. When you talk about the analysis of the gait, we're speaking specifically of the biomechanics of the lower extremities, right? We're talking butt to feet. So no, yes. I'm assuming nothing was taken into account with respect to like crazy arm movements within the gait. Is that fair? That's... A good question, and I think that is true. Also okay. in the sketch, like they do kind of, they, most of the silliness is in the legs. Okay. I think okay. part of what makes it really comedic is that they're quite stoic from the waist up as they do very, very silly walking. But yeah, I do believe that this was focused on okay. um, the waist down. Okay. Um, and so... In this new BMJ study, um, researchers from the University of Virginia, Arizona State University, and Kansas State University uh, took things a few silly steps further. They gathered 13 healthy adults, as is usually the case with these BMJ studies. You know, small sample size. <laughs> nobody's, nobody's trying to uh, produce groundbreaking scientific insight here. But That is, to be fair, 26 legs, though. Like yes, it's true. Legs. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's it's not. It's it it's it's a respectable uh, proof of concept. <laughs> a I silly would say. sample. 13. Dare I say? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, so they had them each put on uh, a rig to measure how much oxygen they were taking in, um, how much energy they were spending, and how intensely they were exerting themselves. Um, the standard kind of metabolic analysis uh, in these sort of physiological studies, uh, and then each of them walked around in a normal gait. They got to, you know, pick just walking how they would walk. 
Then they also took turns mimicking Teabag and Pewdie. Um, and there are great videos, which I will post on popside.com slash weird. Um, the researchers found that the Pewdie walk, uh, not very silly at all, didn't expend much more energy than a normal stroll. But the teabag walk basically amounted to intense exercise, um, even though it's like not particularly fast or um, obviously strenuous. It just involves a lot of random movement and that, uh, in effect, people were really getting a workout. So based on their findings, the researchers say that doing the teabag silly walk for 11 minutes a day could provide adults with their total recommended amount of physical activity. Um, even if someone can't or doesn't wish to kick their legs into the air or shuffle strangely, uh, the researchers point out that the key is that the movement is inefficient from an energy expenditure standpoint. So they say that you know anything that makes your movements less efficient without, of course, causing you pain or discomfort. So uh, like if you're a wheelchair user, you know, wheeling around in a zigzag motion. That's an inefficient motion compared to a straight line. Um, that that can accomplish the same goal. And since the best physical activity is whatever activity gives you joy to do and is, you know, easy to do regularly, um, a silly walk could, for some folks, be better than like trying <laughs> to form a gym routine. Of course, you know, um, people may think that you are uh like really not okay, <laughs> depending <laughs> on what your silly walk looks like. But hey, you know what? Um, I think that part of joyful movement can be not caring that you look like a fool. I have this one quote from the researchers that uh, we did not measure minutes spent laughing or number of smiles as secondary outcomes while, while walking inefficiently. Smiling during the inefficient walking trials could not be observed due to participants' mouths being obscured by the face mask worn during data collection. However, all participants were noticeably smiley upon removal of the face mask. Moreover, bursts of laughter from the participants were frequently noted by the supervising investigator, almost always when participants were engaging in the teabag walk. So um, lovely takeaway from this very silly, silly walk study. Uh, just a reminder that like fun, silly um, activities that don't like appear uh, strenuous or like, you know, look like what fitness influencers are doing on Instagram are still to like, to like a great way to get your body moving, get some endorphins and um, also, you know, uh, honor an excellent Monty Python sketch if wow. you so wish. That like warms my heart. I don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's very sweet. Um, and yeah, there's actually been some research recently on like trying to figure out the reasoning behind like why our gait is the way it is because human feet and hips are like very bizarre and you know we do walk in the most energetically efficient way possible um on average generally speaking and so yeah um you know being less energy efficient when you think about it is like what all exercise boils down to you're like adding a heavy thing to your hand to make the movement of putting your arms over your head less efficient though as someone who does weightlifting like obviously you do want a heavy weight to be lifted in the most efficient way possible so you don't hurt yourself so um that is like one caveat i will say to this very cute takeaway 
But I love it. <laughs> yeah. That's my whole thing. Like, when's the next silly walk class that I can sign up for on class pass? Is my <laughs> I think, question. I think, well, you know, um, since we don't live in the world of Monty Python where you can go uh, apply for a government grant to perfect your silly walk, I think, um, you know, the, your silly walk should be whatever uh, your heart tells you it should be. So. Listen, in, in my <laughs> dreams, the silly walk is an Olympic event, right? <laughs> But it is much like many gymnastics events where it's judged on different criteria. So I think you could judge it upon like arti art artistry, right? Who has the best looking silly walk is one. Second, like what instill, I guess there'd be overlap with like what instills the most joy in the audience. But then the last one, which you just brought up is like, which one is actually the most energy you can measure the energy inefficiency and like you get right. points for that as well. I would be a the, judge. I would love to yeah. judge that. It's like three like, different levels of of silly. Like it's like, does yeah. it, do you feel yeah. silly? Do, you, do your friends feel silly? And like, does your body <laughs> feel silly? And I yeah. bet people from certain countries would be like really good at certain metrics, but not at other ones. And there'd be like rivalries. I'd love it. Love it. Yeah, that sounds great. It kind of, it's, it, to me, it's like, it's like the ice dance of exactly. speed walking. Yep. Like yep. we we need a creative speed walking category. Mm -hmm. um, many people also already think speed walking is very silly. No offense to speed walkers. They accomplish physical feats I could never dream of. But listen, I think it could get sillier. Yeah. <laughs> it can always yeah. get They're sillier. Too They're too efficient. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more weird facts. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. Okay, we're back. And Dustin, tell us yeah. about the king of the dinosaurs. The king, America's dinosaur, the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Now, I mean, everyone has obviously heard of T-Rex. Uh, people love it. I used to think T-Rex was underrated. Uh, the more I learn about Tyrannosaurus Rex, the more appropriately rated I do believe it is. We can talk about bite force. We can talk about tiny arms. 
But I think the most interesting and fascinating thing over the last few years that we're starting to realize is that T-Rex was probably, maybe not covered, but probably had some level of federation. If federation is not a word, uh, it is now, it I should guess. Be. <laughs> yeah, I think it should be. Um, now, it's not new news that a lot of bipedal theropods, so theropods are the primarily carnivorous bipedal dinosaurs, think your T-Rexes, your velociraptors, that type of thing. We've known for a while that certain species had feathers, but it wasn't until relatively recently we started to discover a lot of smaller T-Rex relatives with direct evidence of feathers. And the more and more of these we find, the more likely it is, at least scientifically, we start to think it's much more likely that T-Rex itself also had feathers. Now, I always like to, before we get into like what the actual scientific evidence for this is, I like to think about, or I like to rem remind people about every single type of like caveman or Australopithecine or pro, we would call them like proto-humans um, because we don't have direct evidence that like Lucy, about 3.2 million years ago, the first fully upright bipedal hominid, we have no evidence that Lucy had any level of hair or fur, but if we look at every single primate alive today, we're covered in some level of hair. So it stands the reason the more and more close relatives of T-Rex we find with direct evidence of feathers, T-Rex itself probably had feathers as well. Now, do you, I don't, you guys know, you know Velociraptor unequivocally has feathers. Have you guys heard about this? I have heard about this. You have heard about this. Okay. Rachel, I assume you've heard uh, uh, about vaguely, this. Vaguely, but tell vaguely. me more. Sure. I mean, <laughs> well, finally, in the, in the most recent iterations of Jurassic World, they finally have some raptors with feathers. And in fact, when Jurassic Park originally came out, at least within the scientific community, we knew Velociraptor had feathers. It just wasn't in the like common parlance um, in the public's mind mind's eye so that that's probably why by the way they weren't actually uh, velociraptors in jurassic park they're deinonychus which is a larger animal steven spielberg liked the name velociraptor <laughs> better so they went with that but really what you're looking at in the original jurassic park is a plucked deinonychus because oh, in real life yeah right uh in real life <laughs> velociraptor was the size of like a medium dog and we now know it was covered in feathers and so when it comes to extinct animals that haven't been here for literally millions of years there's a couple ways we can we can glean clues about whether or not they had feathers or any soft parts integumentation like on the outside of the body that generally doesn't fossilize the way that bones do so first you have uh feather or skin impressions where there's like literally an impression of where the feathers were on the rock around where the bones are fossilized so while mm -hmm. they're not the actual feathers it's a good indication there were feathers there i think for a velociraptor it's even cooler and more interesting because we have found some really, really well-preserved velociraptor specimens with evidence of something called quill knobs. And in modern birds, mostly along forearms, quill knobs are divots in the bone and they're spots where tendons attach feathers to the bone. So you find a velociraptor skeleton with those divots all along the forearm, even though the feathers haven't been there for literally millions of years, it's a pretty solid indication feathers were once attached at those sites, which again makes your velociraptors in Jurassic Park look like weird naked skin chickens when they should probably be maybe not covered in feathers but definitely have some leather level of feathers uh and as someone who's like a dinosaur nerd on the internet a lot of people say oh i don't think dinosaurs with feathers are scary which i respond my guy have you ever seen a bird like yeah, if you've ever terrifying. had a run-in with like a goose yeah exactly feathers feathers can just because something's are soft scary to me doesn't mean that yeah. it's your friend like no. Over and over no. and over in history, we have learned that. Yeah. 
And people like there's e you can make easy guesses as to why feathers first evolved, which is like coloration for either mate selection and display or for downy tufts for insulation to stay warm. But something people don't think a lot about, especially when it comes to something like Velociraptor that had big feathers on its forearms. If you have feathers on a non like a flightless animal, those feathers are often used, especially in the case of uh, Velociraptor, to flap and hold down struggling prey. So that downward oh, thrust can create a lot of <laughs> help for you strength-wise to hold down something that may be larger than you are in order to dispatch and kill and need it. Which makes, again, feathers even more ter terrifying. They're literally air airbenders. Like, it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, blow, like, blow a Velociraptor up. Remember, Velociraptor, medium-sized dog, to something the size of a T-Rex. And again, we don't have direct evidence of feathers in T-Rex, but it's smaller cousins like Dilong, Uteranus, Guanlong, direct evidence of feathers on these guys. So I think I'm excited for the future. And by when I say future, I mean, I don't know, next five, 10 years of paleontology, because we're not only going to start finding more and more animals with feathers. Ideally, we'll see a T-Rex with some direct evidence. Uh, we can even get into coloration of feathers if you want. Again, I will nerd out about this all day. <laughs> so just cut me off. Well I want to I want to talk about T-Rex's tiny arms. Please. Cuz it's been a few years since I was looped into the the latest thoughts on on why their arms so tiny. <laughs> I well, I have to turn it back to you first as a scientifically minded person. You look at this animal, it's ginormous and its arms are comically mm -hmm. small. What why how why? What do you guys think? Do you have any theories, hypotheses? Mm-mm. I don't. I don't ask listen, questions you can about that. Anything that's totally <laughs> listen. Whatever wild theory you come up with is probably not going to be as weird as an actual one that was reported by a paleontologist. This is a few decades ago. Where he, like, how would you even begin to try to test this? He purported that the males, just the males. This doesn't explain the females' arms at all. The males would use their tiny arms to tickle the backs of females while mating. <laughs> Ew. Yeah. I yeah I don't I don't want to hang out with any scientist who's like thinking that much about back tickling. I don't um, know. Couldn't know. I, well, tickling I once, is famously sexy. Everyone loves tickling. <laughs> like, listen, whoa. no shame to people who do, but again, I don't think I want to hang out with that particular professor. Um, I one time I covered an archaeology story and the the guy who wrote it and kind of my main outside source. Um, well, it was sort of, you know, towing the line between archaeology and paleontology because we're talking about like proto-humans. And uh, it was the same kind of like maybe they had this kind of bone because they did this. And my outside source was like, he's literally just making up a story. There's nothing that can prove or disprove this. <laughs> and I was like, my dude, yeah, I get that. But also he said the same thing about what you said. <laughs> it gets very uh, intense. <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, not that. I don't know. If that's a great example. But one of the reasons why I do believe dinosaurs are a gateway drug to science is because they're not here anymore. Well, birds, that's a whole other conversation. But non-avian dinosaurs are not here anymore. Right. So like, Rachel, if you are a lion scientist, you can go look at lions. You can observe how they move, how they yeah. mate, how they hunt, all that. But like, I can't go watch a T-Rex walk down the street. So Yet. if you're four or 400 years old, like you could be studying this your entire life or you can be a kid with wikipedia and a bunch of books and your ideas about maybe how they looked or moved or took care of their young could potentially be just as accurate and worthwhile as a real life practicing paleontologist and that really like yeah. levels the playing field and to me it speaks to like why we do science in the first place and it's always totally. fascinating always drives curiosity and there's always more to learn 
Yeah. Well, and you know, you can't go back and study a dinosaur, but you can stick a plunger on a bird's butt. You like can't. Did you that can't do time. that. That oh. is true. That is, that is absolutely true. <laughs> I, will, I will link to that on popside.com slash <laughs> week. Um, Sarah, your, so, your face did a thing. <laughs> oh, my, oh my gosh. <laughs> So to yeah. give it um to to make it stand like a dinosaur so they were like this is how they walked because we gave it a little a little plunger butt anyway who great are study. these people <laughs> like, um, so what is the latest thought on on the short arms okay so you, you or, don't want to throw out a theory that's fine you don't i i guess like if i was gonna come if i was gonna say a random theory the first thing that comes to mind is like I mean, I guess I think of it in terms of being more of a like a claw for fighting other T-Rexes. So it's like okay. more efficient to have it up there at T-Rex level than okay. having like a long floppy level. arms. Okay. I don't know. T-Rex level. That's like a T-Rex <laughs> argument, like rock, paper, scissor it out with your T-Rex. Oh my yeah, exactly. That's what I'm that's what I'm seeing. They didn't have scissors, but no. Um, <laughs> quick sidebar. I know this is a this is an auditory platform, so you guys can see this. But Rachel, you did your claws like this. So <laughs> yeah, for those of you at home, quotes. if you want to do, if, yeah, like air quotes, basically, if you want to do anatomically correct, just, not just T Rex hands, but like any theropod dinosaur, they were clappers, not slappers. So if you your your palms need to face in towards each other, clappers, okay. not slap. Yeah, got it. I know it's very so my, important. My air quotes gotta correct. face each other. <laughs> Yes, your air quotes face Excellent. each other. Exactly. exactly. That makes it like even more useless to me. <laughs> you know? They, no, they could clap each other's heads like I guess. Like I don't know, but if they were up like this, you could like snatch things from like a tree. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Never mind. Well, I don't think... It's funny. I don't think either of those things were happening. And that actually is a good segue <laughs> fair into, enough, fair <laughs> into my theory as to why they had tiny arms. And it's not that they had tiny arms for a reason. It's because other stuff got bigger. I think tiny arms were an evolutionary trade-off. T-Rex, I mean, you've seen a T-Rex skull. It's huge. It's massive. They have the strongest bite force of any animal ever. I'm sorry. On land. Any animal ever on land. Any terrestrial <laughs> animal. And about 13,000 pounds per square inch. That's like dropping 13 grand pianos on the space the size of a quarter, right? Uh, I should, also, they're doing this with, I don't even call them teeth anymore. They have like nine inch serrated murder bananas. <laughs> I prefer you. I just, I love the phrase murder banana. Yeah, they're serrated. That's another thing people don't know. They're serrated on two different edges, like double sided steak knives. So Oof. we're talking perfect killing machine. Clearly, over time, nature was selecting for bigger, stronger bite force. That right. was clearly helpful for this animal. And you, and in order to gain that much weight at the front of their body without basically tipping over and maintaining <laughs> a balance, right, bipedally, they have to lose some weight in the front. And so maybe arms atrophied basically over time or were not being used. And again, nature was selecting for a larger head, more musculature, heavier, more robust skull. And so over time, those arms lost any real function uh, as a trade-off. And so it's not that, so it's funny because we're like, oh, what were their arms for? And I guess my answer would be, nothing <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and that's great because like that is something that um comes up in talking about evolution so much i mean in my book which is about the history of sex i talk about the evolution of the sexes a lot and there's a lot of kind of getting people to just like flip the way they're thinking about stuff because it's like don't ask why this happened like why this would have arisen ask like what might have been pared down to this thing you know oh interesting yeah because yeah. evolution is like um 
it doesn't take requests. I say that a lot. <laughs> and sometimes to get a giant chompy head, you're going to end up with little arms. Um, yeah. Very cool. That's funny. It just made me think of like, no one's like, hey, Usain Bolt, how do you use your fingers? You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not the question. Right. Yeah, totally. So you said that you used to think that T-Rexes were yeah. underrated. No, I used to think they no. were overrated. Okay, okay, never mind well, that. I was going to say, yes. like, what made you lower your estimation? But you have be- you have become more impressed with T-Rex over time. Right, because, like, it, you know, it's in the... Cog- you're, you're cognizant of T-Rex from, like, age, I don't know, three, right? And everyone's always talking about it. And it's what is portrayed as the cinematic movie monster, basically, right? Um, but I don't have to tell you guys, like, the stuff you see in the media isn't always 100% scientifically accurate, Right. But once you actually start digging and learning about T-Rex, when it comes to like feathers, when it comes to bite force, uh, they when it comes to their furcula, they had a wishbone, like the uh, the clappers. The more I learn about T-Rex, and the more I learn about other dinosaurs in comparison, I mean, it may not have been the largest land carnivore ever. Um, Giganotosaurus and Spinosaurus are both up there, but in in the in North America, absolutely. Uh, I just like the more I learn, it's like, okay, I think there's a reason why this thing has captivated hearts and minds for a hundred years. Totally. So I think it is fairly, once you get past like the pink neon ones on like backpacks and you think about it like strictly <laughs> as an animal, I don't, I do think it is appropriately rated. I think I, I, I said again, I'll say multiple times, dinosaurs are a gateway drug to science. They're the greatest group of animals that the process of evolution has ever produced. Uh, I believe the jury is still out on humans. We can't, we can't make a judgment (laughs) on humans yet, but like just the diversity in form and function of what is obviously like awe-inspiring just to see. I don't think there's a group of animals that holds a candle to dinosaurs. What's your favorite dinosaur? Thank you for asking. Uh, It changes all the time and kind of like a proud parent. I feel a little weird selecting just one and saying (laughs) it publicly. Um, Two that I always come back to are, first of all, Deinonychus. The Deinonychus basically jump-started the, I'm throwing up air quotes, dinosaur revolution in the early 70s, where not just in scientific circles, but in the public eye, dinosaurs kind of went from these slow, cumbersome reptiles dragging their tails through the swamp to much more like active, athletic, warm-blooded predators. And Deinonychus was kind of the the animal that jump-started that. Um, Specifically in 1969, John Ostrom, I'm sorry, Robert Backer drawing, maybe put that somewhere, this back B-A-K-K-E-R drawing of Deinonychus in 1969, it still haunts my dreams. I still remember seeing it in a book as a kid, and it was like unlike any other animal I'd ever seen, ever. So Deinonychus is one, and the other, we're going to go herbivore to counter that carnivore, uh, Parasaurolophus, which is a duck-billed hadrosaur that has a meter-long, three-foot-long, basically head trombone. So its skull has a nasal passage, air goes in its nose, it goes backwards three feet, loops back around and comes out its mouth. It it does, it has a trombone attached to its skull. (laughs) Doesn't love that. We don't know exactly what it's for. I always say any weird feature on a dinosaur is either fighting, flirting, or fanning, like thermoregulation fanning, fighting, flirting, or fanning. And for that, it's probably probably flirting like big cacophonous yeah, like vocalizations what else is, a, is a nose trombone for how, do we know yeah. what kind of sound like can you play it like an instrument okay okay, okay. i mean they've people have made models at the field museum next to their parasaurolophus fossil there's this thing that you can blow into that I mimics that. the shape now how exact that is to what it really <laughs> sounded like who knows uh, but yeah people have definitely experimented with that and that i will say low-key 
Parasaurolophus is a lot of people's favorite dinosaur and it flies under the radar. A lot of people. <laughs> Amazing. I have to ask you guys, what are your favorites? I had one once and now I'm really, I'm really blanking. Um, I think I went through a period where I covered so many studies about newly discovered or better understood yeah. dinosaurs that um, they kind of blurred together. But now I'm like, I gotta, I, I want to dive back in. I'm gonna, I'm gonna find myself a new favorite dinosaur. The the nose trombone is probably gonna be hard to beat, to be honest. Yeah, it's fun. Um, I'm also like I have to say I'm kind of more of a Leopleridon person. Oh, um, okay, okay. <laughs> Technically not a dinosaur. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Actually, obligated like, to say, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I'm more of a Leopleridon person. Um, but yeah, you know, I I do love the weird herbivores. I think, generally mm-hmm. speaking, more than the carnivores, just because I think their faces. They, they 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 come up with weird shapes, you know. When it's not all about like jaw power or like agility, they they do some really funky stuff with their faces. I love a duck billed dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. Sarah Kylie, what about you? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm in kind of the same boat where I see so many random ones like once and then it's like gone. But I am partial to the ones they find in Scotland. Um, there was this one that had like I, they found like a tiny baby one and the illustration was just so so cute that I like I'll, I'll have to send it to you guys but um but I think like T-Rexes are kind of like the golden retrievers of like dinosaurs like <laughs> wow. they deserve they deserve to be wow. up there the way that they are up there like there's a reason okay. but does it, that they don't have to be your favorite golden retrievers aren't my favorite but like you can't even deny that they're they deserve okay. to be up there okay they're good I dogs. need to find I need to find whatever the corgi of the dinosaur world was and that's gonna be my favorite I think this is comparing dogs goofy. to dinosaurs is a good no, route you just inspired me I'm gonna do this because like one of the things I like doing in my science communication is like try to put dinosaurs in a completely different realm that people would imagine totally. uh, as a means of like engaging in a new way so for instance literally yesterday i went through all the star signs i was like okay what are mm-hmm. what is characteristic of your libras what is characteristic of your sagittarius and then which dinosaur best fits those uh and so i now have a list of star sign dinosaurs but now i gotta make a dog equivalency what was aquarius dare i ask what was aquarius <laughs> thank you for asking um let me double check i have that right here aquarius uh january 20th through february 18th is that correct yep Yep. Okay. Are you, you Sarah Kyle, are you also an Aquarius? I yes, forgot that. We're both Aquarius. Oh, two Aquarius. Okay, <laughs> this is gonna be tough. Um so apparently you guys fetishize personal freedom. Uh you're purposefully esoteric and mm-hmm. mostly just no feelings, just concepts. Uh, and so <laughs> just I just vibes. <laughs> just vibes. So I went with Stegosaurus. Nice. Um I feel like it's pretty weirdly esoteric and just just vibes, man. The plates, spikes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can yeah, I'm happy okay. with that. I can get behind that. I'm supportive. <laughs> But I am excited to find out what the corgi um, Corgi's of, gonna be tough. of the dinosaur world is. Well, can, well, you know what? Put me on the spot. Give me, when you think of corgis, just give me a quick, like, center to description of a corgi. Compact. So, like, yeah, yeah, compact, yeah. short compact. legs. Um, Funny proportions. Okay. Uh, Sassy attitude. Has an attitude. Yeah. Kind of okay. happy-go-lucky, goofy. Okay. And popular. Okay. Yeah. So, I have two potential uh, dinos. So first, Protoceratops. Protoceratops okay. is a very small version of Triceratops, basically. lived in the Gobi Desert. Protoceratops is interesting because we found them. I mean, full size, it's like medi- large dog-ish. Uh, and we found 
so many of their remains at like every life stage that we're we completely understand their ontogeny, like how their bodies change and grow uh, throughout their course of their life. But I think we I'd want to go for corgi. I want to go with uh, an animal whose name is impossible to pronounce when you see the words <laughs> until you hear that it's it's just called C, like look at C taco saurus. C taco saurus. It's like P S I T T O something. Uh, but there are these tiny little guys with big eyeballs and they have, uh, we think some sort of, Oh wow. Like, I looked it up and yeah, yep. that's yeah. a good, <laughs> yeah, that's a good, they've got little like weird, I don't want to say fur, maybe like not fur, but like feathery oh. spines coming off their butts and yeah. corny butts are, are famous too. Oh yeah. This is very cute. Okay. Yeah, this, thank you a... for, uh, inspiring my next Instagram post. Dinosaur yeah, I dogs. Wait. I okay. am really excited to see it. Watch this space. <laughs> Perfect. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with one more fact. Okay, we're back. And Sarah Kylie, tell us um, what, what's been going on in the cupboards. What's been going on in the cupboards? <laughs> yeah, so this is more like too many um, weirdest things, um, but get excited so double trouble um so as someone who doesn't clean out their desk often enough um today's weirdest <laughs> thing is a wake-up call to do it more often especially if you happen to work at a museum because who knows what you'll find once you fish out all the mess for me it's like a missing earring or like a broken pen that i find in the void but two museums um very recently found something much cooler and much more relevant to the studies of long-lost creatures so that's right two in two museums this year Researchers found both a hidden lizard relative that holds the key to when squamates originated, which is a big whooping deal, apparently, and the remains of the last living Tasmanian tiger. And they're both just shoved in a <laughs> cupboard somewhere. So um, and these findings were reported days apart. So apparently everybody did their spring cleaning at the same time. But I'm going to talk to you a little bit about both of them. Um, but first, shout out to um, our science news writer, Laura. Um, she does the reporting on all of these fun little zany things. So... Thank you to her for letting me even talk about them. But let's start with the lizard. So for <laughs> our first adventure, we're going to go to the Natural History Museum in London. Um, in the 1950s, scientists discovered a, a lizard fossil in Gloucester, England. And back then, back in, like, I'm talking a million years ago, not in the 1950s. Uh, in the 1950s, it pretty much was the same thing. But millions of years ago, um, whales in southern England were quite different from what we'd expect today. The area, like, around Bristol and Cardiff now um, were thought to be an archipelago of islands where dinosaurs roamed, which, I, you know... There you go. Talking about corgis. Um, that's where they came from. <laughs> the Welsh corgi of dinosaurs. <laughs> there you go. But um, so in the 1950s, they went to this area, dug up a bunch of dinosaurs, or not dinosaurs, lizards, excuse me. And they found a weird lizard, but it kind of got grouped in with the Clevisaurus fossils, which is a part of the rhin Rhynchocephalia group, which I'm, I hope, hopefully I've said that right. I looked it up earlier today. Um, and the Rhynchocephalias, there's only one living relative of this species or this group now, um, the Tuatara of New Zealand. But the oldest fossils of this group go back like 238, 240 million years ago. So these are really old. And it was assumed that at that point, um, they split from squamates, which basically include the majority of today's lizards and snakes. So we have these two groups, only one of the Rhynchos made it, and the rest are squamates. But if you take a second look at the stuff in your junk, junk drawer, if you're the National History Museum <laughs> of 
London can make for some pretty exciting stuff. Um, so they took a closer look at this weird fossil that kind of had just been lumped in with other lizards. They did um, some x-ray scans and reconstructed the skeleton in 3D, and they discovered that this lizard w- had more in common with the ones scampering around in our backyards than the unique Tortara. So it wasn't a Rinko. And according to the science, according to scientists, this newfound species is qu- clearly a squamate, which ages when squamates broke off back quite a little bit. And it differs basically in the brain case, in the neck vertebrae, in the shoulders. There's a median upper tooth in the front of the mouth. Um, the way the teeth are set up are very different. Um, there's also what is this? There's some weird stuff that is a primitive feature not found in modern squamates. Um, an opening on one side of the end of the upper arm bone. Um, the humerus where an artery and nerve pass through. So just some weird stuff for sure from millions of years ago. The, basically what they found was that this old lizard in the cupboard was more like the European glass lizard and many snakes like bows and pythons than the lizards that it kind of had been smushed in the cupboard with, which is pretty exciting. Check your lizards, people. Check your lizards. (laughs) So it got a whole new name, um, which I'm not even going to try, but you can read about it on popsci.com slash weird. Um, But it means small butcher because they have little little baby sharp teeth. Um, But yeah, the crucial finding here is that squamates may have started diversifying quite a bit earlier than we thought in the late Jurassic. But yeah, so one of the scientists who did the research, Mike Benton, said, this was a time of major restructuring of ecosystems on land with origins of new plant groups, especially modern type conifers, as well as new insects and some of the first modern groups such as turtles, crocodiles, dinosaurs, and mammals. Adding the oldest modern squamates then completes the picture. It seems that these new plants and animals came on the scene as part of a major rebuilding of life on Earth after the end Permian mass extinction 252 million years ago, and especially the Cambrian pluvial episode 232 million years ago when climates fluctuated between wet and dry and caused great perturbation to life. So yeah. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Great perturbation <laughs> to life. So yeah. <laughs> So this it's always nice when a finding like that like makes sense in the broader evolutionary picture. It isn't like how the heck? Yeah, it's just like crap. We just had write it all. This thing yeah. that makes complete sense buried <laughs> for sixty something years. Um, so yeah, yeah, clean out your cupboards. Uh, you might find <laughs> something that makes complete evolutionary sense that you forgot about. Um, so yeah, that's the item number one. And then the next one is about um, the last Tasmanian tiger so the next reason clean out your drawers comes from the tasmanian museum and art gallery in hobart tasmania and so oh, t-mag these... i've been to t-mag this is a great museum it it's is great... on my to, Sorry, to go, go list now because i'm like i want to see i want to see all of the the tigers but so the the remains that these that we're talking about now the the tiger are not millions of years old but they're still a really big deal because for for 85 years um the remains of the last known tasmanian tiger or thiocene were missing like nobody knew where they were until they were found in a cupboard at this at t-mag like a cupboard it, just the oldest <laughs> like people have been looking for this for 85 years like i don't know i don't know it's like <laughs> but, next to the coffee creamer like that's like, like, in, like in the staff room how did how did you forget about this <laughs> but um it, there's kind of like a fun little story behind it but um here's a little tr- trivia about the tasmanian tiger first it was a dog-sized carnivorous marsupial with sharp claws native to new guinea australia tasmania for four million years um it's funky looking for sure it's got yellowish gray fur and distinctive tiger stripes 
However, the creatures first disappeared from the mainland about 2,000 years ago, and there's a couple of reasons why people think that happened, like hunting and introduction of the dingo. But by the late 19th and early early 20th century, Europeans like started to come in and colonize things, which was a little bit of a disaster for lots of things, um, including the, these marsupials. Um, People blamed them for killing chickens and sheep, and they were slaughtered by the thousands, and governments even started offering bounties for them. Like, if you brought a pelt, then you would get a bounty. Um, So this plus the dingoes was a big disaster. And the last known Tasmanian tiger in the Beaumars Zoo in Hobart died on September 7th, 1936. But when you see pictures of, like, the last ever tiger... It's not this one. Like, it's very weird. The, all of the pictures that if you, like, you know, look up last Tasmanian tiger, it's actually the second to last one. Like, this one just kind of fell off the radar because they couldn't find its body, I guess. And so the last one is actually a very old female that was captured by a trapper um, and sold to the zoo in the middle of May 1936. And it was not publicized at all because it was really like you weren't supposed to be snaring these things. Um, I mean, obviously, this was the last one. Like, I don't know who was out there like, I got to go get it. Um, but yeah, so it was kind of like hush hush a little bit because it was kind of shady that they even had this. Um, and it only lived for a few months. And when its body died, it was taken to when its body died. When the tiger died, when it passed on, <laughs> the body was taken to T-Mag um, because, hello, it's the last one. We need to figure out all sorts of things because um, this is our last chance, I guess. And for many years, um, the museum curators and researchers searched for this this body. They, they could not find it. And the, they couldn't find any thiocene material dating from 1936. They couldn't find anything recorded. Um, they just assumed somebody threw it out, which is wild (laughs) wild to me um but uh a couple of scientists did some in-depth snooping like some like really in-depth snooping and found an unpublished museum taxidermist report from 1936 to 1937 and it mentioned the tasmanian tiger and so they were like okay we have a record that has not been published that's you know 90 years old let's let's do a little dig in And so they did that. They dig through all of the Tasmanian tiger samples in the entire museum. And they found the tan skin and disarticulated skeleton of the final one, the last one. So the mystery is over um, for now. I mean, (laughs) there are plenty of people (laughs) out there that would like this one to not be the last one, uh, which I can link to that as well. But yeah, that's a whole different story. And these aren't even the only two things that happened like in a week time span of cupboard discoveries there was a whole other one where the second fossilized evidence ever of army ants was hidden in harvard's um, museum of comparative zoology so there's just a lot of cool stuff that needs to be spring cleaned (laughs) out of the museums um but yeah moral of the story is uh if you have been missing something for 85 (laughs) years it's probably right where you left it (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I love that. Well, they're so I mean, in in every natural history museum, they have like so many drawers and filing cabinets full of catalog stuff. And a lot of it is really fastidiously cataloged. But there's this like stuff 
grandfathered in from a really slapdash era of natural history <laughs> where it was just like some rich man brought this in <laughs> put it in a drawer he says it's a wombat like you know and so they're still like they got a lot of that stuff to sort through still <laughs> it is wild just let me go it's a lot it. It. <laughs> let me in i mean in natural history museums there is stuff like you know what this is once you found it like oh that's a thylacine but like for instance, the American Museum of Natural History, they've been collecting dinosaur fossils for 150 years, and there's literally stuff just still in jackets waiting for an unlucky grad student <laughs> to like unpack this stuff, right? So mm-hmm. I I don't think it would be controversial to say that not just there, but in other major natural history museums, there are unnamed new species of dinosaurs that we just haven't like unpacked yet. We're just totally. waiting. Just waiting, just waiting for someone to name just them. Just waiting. Okay. Luck of the draw. <laughs> yeah, and you get to name, well, I guess most, usually if you find it, you get to name it. People are always like, that's not a real dinosaur name. And I'm like, listen, all names are made up. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> it can be whatever. Amen. That's true. <laughs> like, your name yeah. isn't real either, but like, nobody's right. telling you. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all words are made up. <laughs> what are you going to do? Um, what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? For me, it was the trombone nose dinosaur, even though that was not a main feature. <laughs> I mean, I'm always a sucker for some, from some dinosaur stuff, and we, and we are coming into like possibly a whole dog versus dinosaur Instagram post, which I feel oh, like will yeah. make the highlight of my yeah. my year, and it's only January sixth. So I have yeah, to, so- I have to give you guys credit. I have to shout you out. This is, <laughs> this idea, excellent. Um, so Dustin, that means uh, you win this week. Um, oh wow! Yeah, cool. <laughs> you win nothing, but um, our respect and esteem. Oh, I, um, I just I assume because this is an audio format, people can't see the like the streamers and balloons falling down behind me right now, right? It's yeah, like, we we spend a lot of time setting those up at every yep. host house. How'd you get in into my apartment? What is <laughs> Your cat. That's why he's been looking at you weird. Yep. No, he knew. Uh, Dustin, remind our listeners where they can find you, including so they can track down what kind of dinosaur their dog is sure i mean if you look me up on twitter or instagram if you just look up dustin Groick, you should find me uh on twitter i am dustin Groick. but on instagram i'm dinosaur whisperer because of my strange ability to commute with the past i guess <laughs> awesome the weirdest thing i learned this week is produced by all of our hosts including me rachel feltman along with jess Bodie, who also serves as our audio engineer and editor extraordinaire Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. Our logo is by Katie Belloff. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos.